Consciousness is the only subject that is not an object. This is a statement made by Dr. Peter Boltuck on this episode in the Tech Emergence podcast. Peter is a PhD in philosophy and now a professor at the University of Illinois. And in this particular episode, uh, we focus on Peter's domain of expertise being the ethics of philosophy, but also delve into uh, whether or not machines could ever be granted consciousness themselves. Can we replicate what we experience or more uh, in an artificial mind, and you'll glean an understanding as to why Peter believes uh, hypothetically we could, and why from an ethical perspective, if we want to live together in a world of sentient and intelligent machines, we may want to curve moral space in a way that actually values what is human in and of itself. Um, so without further ado, we'll roll directly into the episode. One. So Peter, I-, I wanted to open things up here because I know we're going to talk about machine consciousness, and that might sort of tee up our ethical conversation towards the end of the interview here. Um, I'm interested in your take, you know, uh, on on the capacity for machines to become conscious. I know there are some folks that are very bullish on this, some folks that are very bearish on this. Where's your take on the uh, capacity of a machine to be as conscious in, in the sense that we are? Maybe we should define the term, but I'm interested in your perspective. Exactly. Let us begin by defining the term. Aha. For me, the most important distinction is between functional consciousness and something else I'm going to define in a moment. So what is functional consciousness? That something can do whatever a conscious being could do. Now, John Searle has a distinction between, you know, hard AI and soft AI. It's not the same distinction because I'm not interested whether that can be attained in exactly the same manner as human beings think, or in some other manner, the question is whether the product is the same. Kind of like, you know, meeting the Turing test. Yes. Can you talk to a machine uh, on the internet and be confused whether this is a machine or not? That's a very simple test of consciousness. I don't think it's good enough, but it's a start. Yep. So this is fun. Can something do, uh, can a machine do something that is as involved as a human being would do or an intelligent animal, yes? Yep. And my answer to this is very simple. Sky is the limit. I don't think there is anything that a conscious human being can do and a machine couldn't in principle do as well or better. Right? And I think it actually comes from something that in logic is called the Church Turing uh, thesis, namely the idea that you can really map mathematically every operation, including every thinking operation, and so there is absolutely no limit also theoretically to think that there is a, an idea uh, or an operation we couldn't have. Got it. Right? Okay. So this is this functional consciousness. Sure. Now, in terms of something else, we can call it phenomenal consciousness like seeing colors and having a first-person consciousness. Here, I need to get a little bit philosophical. Sorry for the No, let's, let's go for it. That's what we're here for. So, uh, there is a difference between understanding colors or tastes or smells as a sensor would. This is a physical operation. They do understand phenomenal data, for instance, red light, can be distinguished from a green light, and that's important for drones or sail-guiding cars or something like that. And a machine can do that. How is it phenomenal? 
because it does read phenomenal spectrum, namely the spectrum that human beings see as actual colors and, you know, have a certain feel to it. We, in terms of, this is kind of phenomenal functional, first person functional. But there is a different and much more philosophical understanding that some philosophers deny but most agree on. Think of consciousness as the, the situation in which a nurse comes to a patient's room and asks whether the patient is conscious or not. Is she interested in the fact whether the patient is intelligent at this moment? Whether she knows her name, where she is? Nope. It's it's just whether there is some light in her brain. Yep. That's all she cares about. And this light in the brain is something different than any functional ability. Either the ability, you know, to think, or even the ability to read sensors, like visual experiences or tactile experiences or something. So that's something that machines don't have yet. Now you can That we know people, of, yeah, for sure. Yeah? No, well, we have pretty good reasons to believe them don't yeah, have... That's reasonable to state, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Now, the interesting question for me is whether they could have that kind of experience. Yes. Um, and now, your supposition is that in terms of the functional consciousness that you had talked about, you had mentioned sky is the limit. I think that there's you know, many a folk that would agree with you there, hypothetically, theoretically, uh, that there wouldn't be all that much stopping a machine from writing a better poem or jumping higher than us or uh, you know, holding a better conversation about you know, uh, the French Revolution. Um, but what you're talking about now is this, this phenomenal consciousness, this... this uh, again, these very difficult-to-grasp terms that we're talking about. And what are your thoughts about a machine having that kind of consciousness? You had mentioned kind of the nurse walking into a room kind of consciousness. How, 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 what are your, your thoughts around sort of a machine's capacity for that? Well, here, here is the argument. I call it the engineering thesis in machine consciousness. Today we don't quite understand how this first-person consciousness is generated. No. 15, 20 years ago, people used to think that it was generated by the thalamus or hypothalamus in the brain. Suppose one day we know how it is generated. We've learned how human heart works, how many functions of human brain work. There is good reasons to believe we are going to know a, the exact blueprint how this first-person consciousness gets generated in the brain. Shouldn't we presume that? I think we should. Yeah. So, once we understand it, there is a very clear situation that we can use the same blueprint to build it in some other entity. For instance, a machine. That's a simple argument. Once we know how it works, we should be able to generate it in a machine. But we are very far from it. There may be, first, we don't understand how it works in humans and animals. And I'm not talking just advanced, very advanced you know, humans, dolphins, rats, clearly have first-person consciousness. Frogs probably have a little bit of it. That's what neuroscience says today. So we need to understand how it works in those animals, and then we can see how our engineering, bioengineering or otherwise, can be used to build it in a machine. It would be a very different question whether we should do that, but, you know, that goes beyond the engineering theories. Yeah, and I... I uh... 
I tend to lean in the same direction as yourself. In other words, when we can understand it at a deeper level, we may be able to replicate it, or we have a, a, actually a reasonable likelihood of being able to replicate it. I think that there is a, a potential sort of catch where we might say, well, you know, we don't really understand anything about what it's made of today, and so consciousness, because we are conscious, we're trying to understand itself, you know, it's really impossible to ever get there, and we're not ever really going to grasp what the heck uh, this, this actually is. I, I, I consider that to be actually somewhat pessimistic. I tend to believe, as, as it sounds like you do, that we will chip away at this black box of the mind, chip away at the black box of conscious sentient experience, and, and somehow compose what what it is made of and what flicks it on and what flicks it off. And I think that what you're saying is that once we understand those those nitty-gritty nuances, uh, we ought to at least theoretically be able to replicate that as well, which would be the kind of the phenomenological consciousness you were referring to? Exactly right. And this first-person consciousness should be understandable unless somebody is really anti-naturalist, that he doesn't think that consciousness is natural, things that it plugs into some other world, which is not a crazy hypothesis. I don't think we should, you know, fall back onto that hypothesis. The whole development of science shows us that we can explain more and more of the things we didn't think we could, like what's in heaven. Yeah, well, now we have, you know, uh, rockets and other ways to, to learn that. What's even life? We had vague ideas, now we have very good ideas how life exactly gets generated. And consciousness is just the next frontier. There is no reason to be a pessimist about that. Uh, so here I'm very optimistic, and therefore there are good reasons to believe that we should be able to understand that it were enough to even build a consciousness for a machine. The other question is, should we do it and why? Yeah, and now, well, let's let's get a little bit into that. I mean, I suppose part of, you know, the explorations of science, the should we do it, um, is, uh, is yeah. You know, I mean, there's just an inkling that we ought. You know, I think that going to the moon, you know, as much as maybe it was some kind of a, you know, a protection, a, a notion that, that, you know, there would be some kind of war station there of the Russians if Americans didn't get there first or something. You know, outside of that, I mean, I, I think a good deal of maybe the impetus for a lot of scientific discovery is sort of, we could, you know, we might be able to do this. Let's put money on seeing if we can get there because I think it'll open up possibilities that we can't see today and maybe allow us to treat ourselves or expand ourselves or better our condition if we have this base understanding of this basic research. Um, so I think a lot of the time, even if we didn't have a great uh, explanation, there would be folks that would want to pursue it for its own sake, but but again, you know, from my own personal perspective, if we are in fact uh, creating an actual awareness, you know, we, we tend to respect things like dolphins. We don't like them getting caught in tuna nets. Some of us don't like tuna getting caught in tuna nets. Most of us are, are pretty upset about people of other races and genders being harmed. Uh, do we want to create a sentient, actually conscious entity that would be granted some light semblance of personhood like we would with our animals and, and fellow humans? Um, and, and do we want to just make them as though it doesn't bear the gargantuan moral consequence that maybe it does? What are your thoughts on ought we cross those bounds? Um, this is a very important question uh, for many reasons. Indeed. However, I wouldn't exaggerate 
you know, most people are not vegetarians and they don't have particular problems, you know, uh, killing conscious animals for meat. Uh, Other people, for sure, most people have an issue with. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. And many, very few people have problems, you know, uh, with exterminating, say, rats and mice, which are very conscious creatures. For sure. And so there is a moral problem, but it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Now, I, I like agree. Research by uh, Tononi, who says that there are really different levels of consciousness, kind of like you are barely awake or you are under some anesthetics and then you are completely conscious and uh, focused. And that might be reflected in different levels of animal consciousness. And don't take me wrong, it doesn't mean that human beings are always at the top. There are biological reasons to believe that in terms of grief, the uh, brain of better prepared than the brain of humans. You know, they mourn their dead for days and days. Very few human communities do that. At the same time, there is some levels of echolocation and some other coordination. The dolphins have better than us. Their brains, you know, are pretty amazing in some aspects. For sure. So it's not that humans are necessarily the best, but also some machines can, at the beginning, be more like, you know, a cockroach brain and have some level of consciousness, but not consequential, and then they may have some functionalities, something special and amazing that would force us or make us respect them the way we respect dolphins and elephants and definitely other human beings, although there are more reasons to expect to expect other human beings, even if they are not very smart, you know, the reasons of, you know, being our kin. Yes, and, yes, which is... Maybe not the greatest logical reason for, but but you know, not that I'm saying we shouldn't val, you know, make humans valid or anything. But I I think that yes, we will have biases. It won't it won't just be uh, uh, abstractions around what holds moral worth in terms of mourning dead and in terms of you know sensory perception and and cognitive ability. I think we'll have our biases around what we value and don't value. But some of those biases might be actually very healthy and also morally good. You know, my second PhD was actually on special moral obligations. Uh, some people think that moral space has to be homogenous, that whether a machine behaves in a certain way, a dolphin or a human, we just evaluate rationality of behavior uh, or some other features. Uh, I would say there is a difference whether I save, uh, you know, my child or my neighbor's child, yeah. or somebody else, I have different levels of moral duties. This, there is a curvature of moral space around us, the space of moral obligations. And there is nothing wrong about it. So no, I, I think that, that, yeah, that makes for a functioning society in some respects. Some levels of human chauvinism and when it goes too bad, for sure. too far, and it actually becomes, in fact, chauvinism, it's, good, it's bad, and it should be criticized. But when there is a certain slight curvature of moral space around what's dear to us, our kin, our friends. I don't think that there is anything wrong about it. No, no, I think, I think they're tough lines. You know, I think that on one side there's like raw, brutal, monkey tribalism, and I think on another side there is, you know, uh, some kind of blank space where you, you know, just as soon save a cockroach as your wife or something. 
Um, and, and I think that, you know, most of us would say, well, by golly, you know, it's got to be something in the middle there. But I think where those lines are drawn is actually relatively tough. Um, exactly right. And standard ethical theory has problems with that. There are certain people, Samuel Scheffler and many others, who have this, you know, group-centered ethics and curvature of moral space, as I call it, which is a very important feature. Uh, that would be a long conversation. It would, I'm sure. I'm, I'm quite interested, though. I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in a sort of moral moral theory. On, on your own end, though, just to aim to keep us on track to some degree here, um, I, I know that uh, you, know, you were... Or you were mentioning that if we were able to create phenomenal, uh, phenomenally conscious entities uh, synthetically, um, that they may in fact earn their place among the dolphins and the people and, and things along those lines. Yes, I quite think so. I think definitely this first-person consciousness, which is more than just first-person viewpoint like a camera. You know, a camera has a first-person viewpoint, but one is, may say... There's nobody home. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Nobody One may say it's to, funny. Somebody to, yeah, somebody has to look through the camera in order for it to be functional. Yeah, yeah. First-person consciousness. For me, first-person consciousness is more like a light coming from a light bulb than any content. Some people get confused and they think that first-person consciousness is about some content, some specific content. Okay, I don't care whether you watch the same movie as I do because I really don't feel your pain and your joy, etc. If even if this is the movie of my life, of course it might be nice if you read my memoirs or if you <laughs> see the exact experiences I went through, but it's very, very different whether I live my life or somebody quite like me lives my life. Yeah. And some really major philosophers miss the point. Huh, curious. And I, I would I mean I, I would agree. I think that um, we have to differentiate the two. It's it's challenging though for yourself, myself and you know, other folks like you who've really made a professional academic career of this, where we're still using, it's very interesting, you know, we're still, although we're doing a little bit of a better job than than your average person at a dinner table, we're still using, you know, uh, there's nobody home, so to speak, you know, as a way of describing what this phenomena is. It's, it's, uh, it's almost humorous to me how challenging it remains to uh, articulate consciousness. Um, and let me tell you why. Because every predicate you use is the predicate used about objects. And the subject, pure subject, is not an object at all. Yeah. That's what we learn from, you know, German classical philosophy, you know, Husserl, others. So we cannot, by definition, have any predicates. So <laughs> predicates about it will be predicates on how it influences objects in the world. For instance, our conscious experiences of something. It's like this necessary factor kind of yeah. light that is on the object. It's, but yeah. you don't see light, you see, even if you think you see light, it's actually, you know, some dust in the air that the light is projected on. Yep. You don't see the light. Yeah. Curious. Okay, I, I like the light analogy. I think I can use that in my own head. To oh, sort yeah, of... that's an old one. Like from no, for sure, for sure. But I, I think it's good to be reminded. Um, but, uh, well, so... interested in just published this year when I claim this kind of first consciousness, first person consciousness is not like software because software is about content, it's yep. like hardware. Because, you know, a light bulb is a hardware, a light also is a product of a hardware, it's definitely some kind of more hardware than software. And so, first person consciousness is just this one switch 
on and off, and of course there can be different levels, as Tonani says, yeah. more of it, different kinds, but it just gets filtrated through information, through content, but that content is not first-person consciousness, it's the content of first-person consciousness. First-person consciousness is the subject which is not an object at all. Yeah, how, how very curious. And, and I think that, you know, to be frank with you, uh, I think that it is alluring to make its difficulty in articulation, it's alluring to make its difficulty in understanding, to, to turn it into something uh, that of course is spiritual and of course is really the final proof of sort of the, uh, you know, the spirit world beyond what, and, and I, I'm not to say, I mean, I, I'm basically certain that there's universes upon universes of which we have no knowledge and entire realms and whole magazines of senses and cognitions and and emotions that we have no capacity to understand. So I, I won't by any means discount uh, any particular notions. I just think that uh, having it immediately be associated with the supernatural and sort of give up on the chipping away uh, or the cracking of that nut of what it actually is, I, I think it has an alluring appeal, the fact it's so difficult to articulate. Peter, the, the, the last question I wanted to ask, just being wary of our own time, is, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts here, um, you know, is it possible that a machine may become uh, more, you'd mentioned, you know, a machine that's uh, uh, conscious in phenomena may in fact gain some kind of credence and respect as a, uh, a moral entity, like the dolphins, like other people, etc. Is it possible that a machine could gain more? Now, here's, here's what I mean, and, and being a philosopher, maybe this will be an interesting little end cap here, um, is that what makes people, you know, uh, what, what makes our consciousness valid or valuable, you know, you had talked about dolphins, they mourn their dead, so they have emotional experience, they remember things, they understand themselves and others at kind of some level of depth, they have uh, a breadth of sort of sensory perception, sometimes beyond our own. You had mentioned a lot of factors that might make us value a consciousness, emotive experience, uh, you know, cognition, a notion of self. Um, is it possible that any of those one things, you know, we could rattle them off again. Emotional experience, sensory perception, uh, knowledge of self, ability to cognate. Um, any of those individual facets that we might call facets of moral worth, that any of those individually could be turned up like a dial with an artificial intelligence to the point where an entity could have astronomically more of any or all of those than a human. In this case, would such an entity potentially hold a higher moral worth than than us or or... Uh, or, or do you see that as sort of unreasonable uh, in some way? I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts. Uh, let me mention what I said before about non-homogeneous moral space. Okay. I think one of the reasons not to use just the objective fact of moral space, you know, a machine can do a better moral judgment uh, at some point, therefore is a more valuable moral entity. Agent. Yep. You know, that would be within a completely homogeneous moral You're right, space. you're right, yep. But our ethics is supposed to be somewhat parochial for a reason. And so for that reason, we don't want to take into account just those operations, even operations of a first-person conscious being, but also their closeness to us. So there would have to be two factors. Yep. So while logically what you say may be possible, I think in terms of the actual human community, it would not be necessarily the right approach within what we can 
We don't know what the very distant future brings, but I think the perspective might be almost dangerous and counterintuitive based on what we know. And I think the best solution to that conundrum, which, which is created by your excellent example, is to say that our ethics needs to be also, you know, not homogenous and really the human ethics within the world where we respect our creatures uh, such as dolphins and apes and many others yeah. more as moral guests and some of them are closer moral guests there's a special status of uh, pets for instance because we made them our friends of course yeah they become close to us they're tied to our emotive experience exactly. yeah and, and we give they, them names we give them special status based on you know, some promises we've made by raising them in a special way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They may not be giving, you know, to animals raised for meat, you know, but at the same time, we should remember, ethics may be universal, but it's human-based, and I believe we should stay with it, at least for a very long time. Yeah, you know, that's, so that, that's a, a thought that I, I think about sometimes, Peter, is, you know, how long... Would, would or could that time last? In other words, you know, there may have come a point where the first mammals, let's say it was rodents, uh, you know, and of course they were not capable of this semblance of cognition as far as I know, but, you know, there could be a sample where rodents would say, hey, you know, is it possible that there are mammals with even bigger skulls than us that can think about even more stuff? Uh, well, yeah, I guess so. You know, we're kind of more than lizards, but we really do need to make sure that rat morality ends up kind of staying really where morality is ultimately grounded because our rat perspective is sort of, you know, being the, the first mammals here, you know, this is sort of the baseline. We, we can't go around letting humans go kill three dozen of us because we're under their basement and think that we're a lesser moral entity. You know, we really are higher. In other words... And it, I think rats would really be confused if they suddenly said, oh yeah, humans are superior to us, let them kill us. You know, that would They wouldn't get it. No, they would not. They wouldn't like that at all, I don't think. I mean, well, it's not in their self-interest, I suppose. Um, but I, I'm sort of pondering to myself, you know, thinking of, of uh, you know, the, just this notion of sort of where we are on this grand timeline of, of life, uh, you know, and, and what link we are and what, what's after us if there is anything. And maybe it's somewhat reasonable to suppose there is. Um, Ought, ought we suppose that within our lifetimes, and maybe the lifetimes of our children and children's children, that we humans uh, shalt uh, hold, and, and you know maybe some people would think indefinitely shalt hold, kind of the highest um, moral standard no matter, no matter how far we, we progress? That um, is a middle way, and that's called human enhancement. Today, I can build an artificial leg for a disabled person, uh, that is almost as good as the actual leg. Yep. I would be allowed to make a leg that is as good as natural leg. But what if I can make a leg that is 30% better oh, yeah. than before? Yeah. Then suddenly many ethicists say no, because this is human enhancement, and I can give him prosthetic leg only if it is as good as the natural leg, but not any better. Yes. This is more controversial and short-sighted. We are going to open up we need to, to human enhancement. It might, unfortunately, be led by military technology. Yeah. Uh, but still, that's one way, you know, that technology progresses in many other domains. It is. I think it is important 
not to close down to the idea of human enhancement. And that differentiates us from rats, because rats are not really able to guide as well as far as we understand their progress also for artificial means. No. I mean genetic engineering, I mean uh, electronic enhancements, I mean all other things. It doesn't mean that I give a blanket statement that I support and, you know, endorse all of those possible enhancements in all social contexts. But definitely, uh, this is some way of the future. I think this is a better way than capitulating our special status for some strictly artificial beings. And by the way, the whole movement of Bika, biologically inspired cognitive architectures, shows how uh, advanced biological cognitive architectures, especially those in humans, are still much superior to machine consciousness. Indeed. Uh, just one simple example. You know, we thought that the fact that as very small kids, we have this detailed observation of the world, but later we lose it and we become kind of more distracted and less focused on details, is a weakness of human biological brains getting older. Now, actually, guys working with the military research, but it's now published, you know, uh, in a publicly available places, uh, discovered that this is the best way of packing information also in the computers. You need to have a number of examples, depending on the domain, maybe like 12 examples that you know very well, and then have higher level generation, generalization, kind of like what teenagers learn, you know, of some other objects, and then very high level generalizations of new objects, because you can find in the memory bank already details uh, that are there. If you try to imprint everything in details, uh, the drag of memory would be, you know, huge. So. We learn many things from our biological cognitive architecture uh, that are that is not even you know close to be understood in AI. No, no. And that's something that's something we need to remember. So it's not like we would just be artificial drugs on the robots we interact with. We have many things to contribute. I, I think so, and I think that that looking inward, I think has and will continue to uh, shine a light on where we might go forward and maybe that's a decent note to end on. Peter, I sincerely appreciate you being able to share your insights here on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thank you very much. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here and remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.